The Zonal Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. With Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, cards, and more to build your own personalized bet. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hi there, welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, with us today, Michael Cox as ever. Michael's The Athletic's expert in all things tactics and tactical trends. And Michael, today's topic focuses on Ajax, and I want you to explain why that is, what the reasoning is that we're going deep into Ajax today. Well, there was lots of chat about them last year, of course, when they reached the Champions League semi-final. I think it's been interesting how they've evolved since then. Had a couple of key players leave. They uh, got knocked out in Europe to the Tafe, and, and they're now, having previously seemed set to run away with the title, now it's a, a bit of a title fight on. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at how they've evolved since last year. And also a great excuse to invite Priya Ramesh onto the Zona Marking podcast. Hi, Priya. Hello there. How's it going? Really good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Uh, you are known on both audio and written platforms as the Dutch football expert. So we're thrilled that you've joined us today. Uh, to put things into context, I think it's worth just reiterating last season, uh, that remarkable run to the Champions League semi-finals for Ajax. And the first time they'd progressed in any knockout stage tie since 1996-97. So a long time coming and Priya... I wanted to get a sense of how important you think it was for Ajax and for their whole identity as a club to compete in the Champions League at that level once again. I think it it was massively important, not only to Ajax, but to Dutch football. And I think uh, Mark van Bommel talked about it at the end of last season as well. He was PSV's head coach who were quite neck and neck in the title race. Um, and it was massive for Dutch football because we, we've seen this sort of decline, well, quote unquote, decline um, over the last 20 years, essentially, um, with Dutch clubs not really performing in Europe, um, not being able to retain talent and all that. And I think it was massively important for Ajax to not only progress that far, but also to do it the way they did uh, and the, to, to essentially play the kind of football that they're known for to have young players um, play very um, crucial roles in that run. In a way, it was also a long time coming in that they'd obviously reached the Europa League final under Peter Bosch. So it wasn't a one-off sort of one season wonder. Um, so there was a sort of build up to the run, um, but it was it was great. Um, I think that will go down in um, Ajax history for sure is a great season. It completely captured the imagination of football fans across the world that run in the Champions League last season. Michael, and from a tactical perspective where you excel, uh, what were the key tactical features of, of Ajax last season? 
Well, I thought it was interesting because there were some familiar principles of, of how Ajax have been playing for 30 or 40 years in terms of they play a high defensive line, they like Paul playing defenders, um, they like lots of width. But then there were some kind of variations. So they played really with a, a number 10 in, in Van der Beek rather than one player behind the other two midfielders. And also with the wingers, I mean, Neres and, and Ziyech were both magnificent and both do have the speed and the ability to, to go down the outside. But... Throughout the Champions League, they, they played quite narrow in the sense that the wingers would come inside and almost overload the opposition to one side. And they were very, very good at playing passing combinations in wide areas and breaking through that way. So, yeah, I thought it was, um, I mean, a really impressive side that was kind of up to date with, with modern tactical principles while also still being, you know, a classic Ajax side in a sense. I notice you haven't mentioned the phrase total football at all there. They also had a quite an unusual... Uh, sort of major sources of goals, right? I mean, Huntelaar was uh, probably fair to say one of the first reserve players. And it was someone like Dusan Tadic that we saw scoring 28 goals uh, in the league, 38 in all competitions, which for those who remember him playing in the Premier League was something of a surprise. Priya, can you explain how that came about and, and how and why Tadic suddenly found himself as a key goal scorer in a Champions League semi-finalist? So, um, obviously, we saw him in the Eredivisie before his move to Southampton. We saw him play for Groningen and then he moved to Twente. And interestingly, Hakim Ziyech was bought by Twente to replace Tadic the summer he left for Southampton. So it was quite full circle to see them playing together for, for Ajax. And I think a lot of people, including myself, thought that when Tadic signed and took the number 10 shirt that, you know, things have been very frosty between the Ajax fans and Ziyech and we thought that would mean that Ziyech was definitely going to leave. So Tadic, when he decided to uh, sign for Ajax, actually came and had a chat with uh, most of the players to get a feel of who'd be staying. And um, Ajax only lost Justin Kluivert that summer uh, and that was crucial because that meant that he already had a system around him that was working. Um, and Huntelaar had been the main striker the season before, but I think pushing 35, he kind of knew that his role was mainly as a reserve. And the, the biggest drop-off was Kasper Dahlberg, who was so good that season that they went to the Europa League final. Um, but I think the key to Tadic's performance was really that he had no other responsibilities in that role. It was a very free role and you couldn't really tie him down to one position. Um, and the the advantage with that, with having players like Neres and Ziyech around him, was that they had a lot of fluidity between them. And I, as Michael said, created that overload to one side and then they could push Van der Beek and the fullback on the other side into more attacking positions. Um, and one of, I mean, I've been watching Dutch football for a while now, but um, watching Tadic and Ziyech play last season was, and this season indeed, um, was perhaps some of the best football and some of the best um, link-up play I've seen uh, in the Eredivisie. A lot of these players uh, maybe wouldn't go as far as saying redefining roles, but certainly uh, um, playing their positions in a, in a different way to, to how we sort of expect many players like that to play. Two key men for them and young superstars, you have to say, Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Ligt, uh, they were such a key part of this run last season. And as it grew and as Ajax continued to progress, it became quite clear that they probably wouldn't be Ajax players much longer. Of course, they both moved on 
in the summer to Barcelona and to Juventus, respectively. Do you think, in terms of this season, because that's what we really want to get our teeth into, does that make it easier for Ajax to plan for life without them? The fact that we were all pretty clear they'd be moving on. Um, I, th- I think, just going back, I think you can say they redefined a lot of roles because... Um, Lasse Schoner, who played uh, number six for most of uh, most of last season with Frankie de Jong, was signed as a right winger or an attacking midfielder, and obviously Ziyech was an attacking midfielder, played on the right wing, and so it was it was a very interesting sort of mix of players adapting to positions that they weren't con- conventionally considered uh, to be great at. Um, so with De Ligt. Um, I think everyone did expect that he would be moving on. I think with De Jong, it was obviously clear in January when uh, Barcelona announced um, the, that he'd be signing for them. Um, and having said that, I don't actually think Ajax have dealt with that in the best way possible. Um, because considering they knew both players were moving on, and even if they didn't, the way that the trend has gone with the Eredivisie over the last few years... It's, it was inevitable. The issue with replacing de Jong is that they didn't actually replace de Jong. So they signed Edson Alvarez and Lissandro Martinez in the summer, who are Mexican and Argentinian, respectively. But they're both centre-backs. They also signed Per Shores the season before and loaned him back, and he's a centre-back. They also signed Kick Pieri, who's also another young centre-back. So they've essentially signed four centre-backs, but lost de Jong and Shona and I think between the two de Jong's been a massive miss but he was sort of you could see that coming with Shona I think losing both of those players in midfield who could really carry the ball through and provide that that sort of transition from defense to attack when you have a high playing uh, defense when you've got your defenders really pushing forward when you've got attackers that are encouraged to go as high as they can um, I think that has really broken down the season because they've had to play Alvarez and Martinez in midfield and they're, they're centre-backs. And Daley Blind can ju- do a job in midfield, but he's he's a lot better in defence. So I think it's really the fact that they they might have even underestimated how important those two in midfield were um, over the summer and just, didn't do, just did not adequately replace them. And Michael, how are... De Jong and De Ligt getting on with their new clubs? Both struggling a little bit, I would say, for different reasons. I think De Jong has gone to Barcelona kind of seen as the heir to Sergio Busquets. The slight issue is Busquets is still there. And I think he's actually playing better now than he was at the start of the season. I think his his, uh, distribution is still very good. He hasn't looked as kind of exposed in terms of mobility. So De Jong's playing quite high up the pitch. And for a player who was you know, celebrated for being so unique and getting the ball deep and driving opponents. I think just in terms of receiving the ball in the positions to do that, he's struggled a little bit. Uh, Delict also had a difficult start to the season. Um, there was a 4-3 uh, win actually over Napoli, but he looked really quite ropey in that one. I think the the stylistic change in moving from Ajax to Juventus is just absolutely huge in terms of what those respective clubs and indeed countries expect from defenders. Um, and there was an interesting quote as well from Giorgio Chiellini who said one of the big issues here is that Ajax, he was playing man-to-man. Here we play zonally and I think he struggled to get his head around that. I don't think there's you know major long-term concerns about either. I think particularly with uh, De Ligt, he's improved a lot in, uh, in recent months. I think De Jong's time will come. 
But I think it goes to show that this was just a fantastic Ajax system and two players who really understood the system, you know, as well as anyone in this team, really. It's interesting to go back to what we were talking about, attempting to replace these players, given that they have almost unique skill sets for their positions and as such, their roles became adapted to, to, I suppose, to underline those skills and to make the most of them. In terms of uh, someone that was signed to replace these players, Lisandro Martinez, you mentioned, I think is the one that I want to know a bit more about, Priya. 22-year-old Argentine player, joined in the summer, and he's played in both defence and in midfield. How's he fared? What sort of a player is he? So Martinez has had a better time so far than Alvarez. I think he was brought in to provide a similar um, set of characteristics as uh, Talia Fico, who plays on the on as left-back as well, and Martinez tends to play left-sided centre-back. Um, he's provided... I, I went to um, Amsterdam to see Ajax play FC Emmen earlier on the season. They won 5-0. Um, and Martinez was... he just fit in very well in the Ajax system. He's playing next to Daily Blind and he fit in as a sort of, you know, um, provided the same kind of pace as uh, De Ligt to kind of complement the skills that uh, Blind brings, obviously, which is more in terms of the vision to play the ball forward uh, and read the game a bit better. And he's got enough of an understanding of reading the game that they have been able to play him as a sort of central defensive midfielder. And he he's arguably been the sort of best option there in certain games, just because Ajax have just been really struggling to feel, find those um, players in midfield to do the jobs that Shona and De Jong did last year. Uh, Van der Beek has had to drop a little deeper, which I don't think has necessarily helped because I think he does function better as a 10. Uh, and I think that was crucial to Ajax's balance as a team last year. And that balance has really been disrupted. Uh, but Martinez, really good in the air. Um, he's very confident. Um, he's um, he's obviously quite still quite rough around the edges. And uh, he's quite tenacious, which can go a bit, you know, can, can go both ways. Um but no, really, really good start to life in the Netherlands for him, I'd say. Yeah, he sounds like an interesting player for sure. In terms of this season's revelation in the style of De Ligt and De Jong, uh, Serginho Dest probably fits the bill here. The right back, actually a, a US international now, but born in the Netherlands, quite the uh, wrangling over his international future, I believe, but committed to the States and starring at right back for this Ajax side. Tell us a little bit more about Dest. Well, so we we are now uh, not really for him because he's chosen the United <laughs> States. Um, um, but uh, yeah, he's uh, come through the Ajax youth system. Um, he's very very intelligent, and he's he reminds me a bit of Philip Lahm. Not to kind of overhype him. <laughs> not to say he's going to end up, you know, World Cup champion. Uh, definitely not with the US. Um, but he's he's very intelligent. He's always got his head up, which is one thing you notice straight away is that he's always scanning around to see what the options are. 
Um, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I actually think right back has been a bit of an issue this season just because there have been multiple players playing there. Um, Dest has been a good option, but it's also worth bearing in mind he's only 18 and obviously has a lot to um, lot to improve on. But great, great promise. Um, I think he, he can only go up from here. Um, Sounds like he might fall between the next Philip Lahm and the next DeAndre Yedlin. So we'll wait, <laughs> wait and see how that goes. And further forward, the most sort of eye-catching transfer, I suppose, was the move for Quincy Promise, who returned to the Netherlands after five years exiled, if you will, in Russia and in Spain. How's he got on uh, towards the top end of the pitch for Ajax? Uh, really good. He's been Ajax's top scorer in the league this season. Um, he's taken over the sort of left wing spot in most games that uh, David Neres used to play who struggled with injury this season um, and sometimes he's played in the number 10 role um, when Neres has been fit or they've used um, other players down the wing um, and he's combined really well with Ziyech and Tadic and they've, they've just got a really good connection on the pitch. Uh, we saw it against Chelsea that him and Ziyech connect really well um, and both of them have actually struggled with injuries this season. And you f- you feel their impact a lot more or the lack thereof when they're not there um, because they just bring so much sort of focus to the attack that's lacking without them. Mm. It was an interesting signing because as a well now 28-year-old and not seen in the Eredivisie since 2014, it, it didn't necessarily feel like a particularly Ajax-type signing. So it's good that that has come off to some extent. And Michael... Priya mentioned him there, Hakim Ziyech, whose left foot could soothe the world's problems, I think. Uh, <laughs> he is a fantastic player, joining Chelsea in the summer, and he was a huge part of that side last season. Is that still the case this season for Ziyech and Ajax? Yeah, very much so. I mean, he's played in two different positions, really. He's played a lot from the right, as he did last season, but there's been a bit more of him as a number 10. As, as Priya mentioned, sometimes Van der Beek's been a little bit deeper, so he's been trying to control the game a little bit more from a number 10 position. I think when he gets to Chelsea, we'll probably see him back on the right flank. I mean, he's a, yeah, he's just a sensationally good player. Maybe a bit of a surprise that he's still there this season. Ajax have got one last year out of him. But he's he's just a real rounder from that position. He can score goals. His crossing's fantastic. Obviously, we've seen his his free kick ability, including at Stamford Bridge. The interesting thing is that Ajax have already looked to replace him. Uh, they've signed a Brazilian Anthony from Sao Paulo for €20 million, Euros, which is a huge amount of money in the Eredivisie and I think really kind of fits into a slightly different transfer policy from Ajax in recent years. We kind of think of them as just buying, you know, the next big thing or producing the next big thing. But when you look at them buying Tadic and bringing back Daily Blind, uh, this is a very young player, but to spend 20 million euros for Ajax, I think is you know, quite a departure from what they were doing, say, 10 years ago. Priya, lastly on, on Ziyech. I think there'll be a lot of Chelsea fans listening who know full well about his technical ability, his skill uh, and the quality of his delivery and of his free kicks, as Michael have said. The other side of the game, the the defensive work rate, defensive side of the game, which is sometimes overlooked, but is absolutely crucial when playing in any position for a top side. Uh, is that something that he he is is good at? Is that something that he has an appetite for? So we've been raving about Hakim Ziyech since he was at Heerenveen about five, six years ago. Uh, And then he signed for Twente as a sort of Tadic replacement. And even when he signed for Ajax, I think 
there was quite a lot of interest from foreign clubs and essentially every season since then he could have left and and it's been I think it's testament to his will um, to win trophies with Ajax and achieve something before he left that he stayed for this long but when he signed he because at Twente he was essentially a one-man attack so he was given all freedom to just go where he wanted no sort of shackled down by uh, defensive responsibilities and he signed for Ajax at a time when they just appointed Peter Bosch, who was quite famous for needing a lot of uh, a lot of a defensive work rate and um, more effort in tracking back from his players. And there were doubts about his ability to adapt to a number ten role in that in that setup. But he started off as a right winger under Bosch and then by the end of the season was playing as number 10 with no no problems at all. So he's got that sort of tenacity in him to track back, win the ball back. Um, and obviously with Ten Hag, he's moved over to the right side a bit more. Um, but he's, I, I can't, I really can't fault his effort. Um, and there have been sort of certain times, um, especially season before last, when um, Ajax fans haven't been particularly taken with Ziyech because he has a tendency to have a lot of shots from range. Some of them do come off and, and it's that sort of, you know, we've, we've kind of had an almost cultural shift away from long shots in, in football recently. And I think it's quite, it's quite refreshing to see a player have the confidence to, to just go for a goal, but understandably can be frustrating. Mm. Um but I, I, I think he'll take to Chelsea very, very easily. Um, I think his his quality obviously is going to be doubted because he's been playing in the Eredivisie. But showed he showed on the European stage last season. I was at Stamford Bridge for that four four game, and he was he was magnetic. He was great, um, and I I can I can see why Frank Lampard was very very impressed with him. And he said the conversation he had with Frank Lampard really changed it for him. So I'm excited to see what um, uh, he does in the Premier League. I think we all are. And certainly since Alessandro Diamanti left, I feel like there's been a real hole (laughs) in the Premier League in terms of people taking an exceptional amount of long shots with their left foot from low low probability, from poor locations. Uh, So it'd be good to have someone to fill in the Diamanti void. He could really be a diamond (laughs) for Chelsea. (laughs) Very nice, very nice. We we spoke about Tadic last season, just an insane amount of goals for someone who'd never been that prolific before. And you mentioned what his role was in that side. What about this season? Certainly not as prolific. You mentioned Promise has has taken a little bit of the the scoring load as well. Uh, is, Is Tadic still the main man in this side? I'd, I'd say so. So he's captain this year. Um, and I think he, luckily for Ajax, hasn't been injured that much. But obviously going from a team that provided him with a lot of ammunition from Neres, from Ziyech, uh, from De Jong, from Shona, Shona especially with all those set pieces, um, going now to a team that's been sort of riddled with injuries, and he hasn't been sort of receiving the same sort of service. I think it's understandable to see a bit of a drop off, but I think he still remains very, very integral to Ajax. Um, and uh, even if the goals haven't been flowing the same the same way this season, um, I think he's still the sort of focus of their attack. And in all likelihood, with Ziyech leaving, with 
Neres potentially leaving. Uh, he's going to be uh, very important come next season as well to just have a bit of continuity when people like Anthony and they've also signed uh, Giovanni from uh, Brazil as well. Um, when they come in and uh, they start to play the Ajax way. Yeah, and I think it's been it's been obvious when they have been playing big games and Tadic hasn't been able to play as that focal point. I mean, there was the 1-0 defeat to RZ before Christmas and RZ are the team they're you know, tied to rivals with at the moment. And, you know, without him dropping deep from that position with Huntelaar, they, they just didn't connect play in the same way. And when you add that to the fact that, as, as Priya says, they don't really have the ball-playing abilities from deep in midfield, it, it kind of just does fall apart a little bit. So it's a little bit like, I mean, this is a very grand comparison, but it's almost like when... You know, initially Guardiola started using Messi as, uh, with Messi as the false nine as an alternative. And then it works so well that when you don't have him in that position, it kind of it feels like a different side entirely when he's not playing there. So, you know, his, his renaissance, if you like, or his peak, I guess, in his 30s has been quite remarkable to see. And great to see a 36-year-old class, Jan Huntelaar, in double figures for the season as well, doing what he's done throughout his whole career. The Champions League is kind of where we started here because that was the highlight of Ajax's 18-19 season. Not so much this year, Priya, out in the group stages and possibly ways in which they could feel a little bit hard done by. They scored the most in their group. They conceded the fewest in their group, but Valencia and Chelsea went through ahead of them. What happened there? Well, I think it's, it's difficult because it was always going to be difficult to follow up last season. And I think we did expect that they'd at least get through to the knockouts again, just having retained uh, so many of their players because even van der Beek was very close to joining Real Madrid at one point. So I think with that core, you would have expected them to go a bit further. But I think that the Chelsea game, just I think heads were lost. Heads were absolutely lost um, with the two red cards. Um Injuries haven't helped. And I think it's just that sort of lack of continuity in the team because so many different players have come in defence and midfield. Whereas last year, I think at least by October, they had a very firm starting eleven, and Huntelaar coming on as sort of the, us- the usual first sub coming on for one of the um, attacking players as a change of strategy. Whereas this season, it's just been a bit all over the place. And... The the key to Ajax last season was that it was a bit like clockwork. I mean, this is, you know, going back to like Dutch stereotypes, but <laughs> it was a bit like clockwork in that the pressing was so well coordinated that when they shuffled across, they'd all shuffle across as a team. And Tadic actually described this earlier on this season, that when one piece in that sort of jigsaw doesn't fit, the rest of it just falls apart. And I think that's what we've been seeing a lot of. And I, I, I'm happy to put that partially down to just having a sort of swinging door uh, effect with players coming in and out of the team with injuries. Michael, the four-all draw at Stamford Bridge, one of the most memorable games of the season and will probably stay in, in the manager Eric Ten Hag's mind as one of the more memorable games that he will have been involved in as a manager as well. Yeah, I mean, there was an absolutely extraordinary incident about half an hour from the end where Ajax got both centre-backs sent off within the same move. So <laughs> Veltman and, uh, and Blind, the referee, played the advantage and there were two quite cynical fouls, one about 35 yards from goal and one about 20 yards from goal. And it was quite extraordinary sitting there and trying to work out what was happening 
initially I thought one of the players had got sent off for dissent, but it was genuinely just two bookable offences. And then you had this funny situation where, I mean, as Priya mentions, they've kind of attempted to replace their deep midfielders with centre-backs and they have an overload of centre-backs. I, I remember I remember <laughs> telling you this after the <laughs> yeah, game, just being yeah. it was handy that they signed so many centre-backs. And then they just, they had the perfect players on the bench. So it was just strange to be... Yeah, watching two centre-backs preparing to come on at the same time. And then I thought Ajax did really well. I mean, they were hanging on at the end and I think Chelsea had a goal uh, disallowed, which would have won the game VAR decision. But I thought the way that Ajax continued to press with two fewer players was just remarkable. They played a back four and pretty much a diamond in midfield and just played as if nothing had happened. It was, you know, it, like I say, it could have gone either way, but I think Ajax actually had more shots than Chelsea after that double red card, which... And it goes to show how comfortable they were playing that system. I, I completely agree. And I think that was sort of the other side of that coin was, of course, the Spurs game last season, which I haven't rewatched at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and because um, it was that sort of, we're leading, we can safely see this out, and but they still go ahead and pressed. And um, they, they then ended up with a sort of mismatch at the back and Spurs, you know, went on to win that game. So I think I, I completely agree that it's it's something that can be an advantage but can easily be capitalised upon by um, opposition as well. You could actually see it in the RZ game that they, uh, they recently lost 2-0 to RZ and both RZ goals were scored in uh, following a similar um, uh, combination of play. Michael... Uh they did make it into the Europa League, but they weren't there for long. We had a serious clash of styles in the round of 32 against Getafe, a, a sort of Beauty and the Beast type vibe with the Beast winning. Yeah, and, and not just winning, but almost bringing Ajax down to their level. And I mean that in a stylistic way rather than a, you know, a, a footballing way because Getafe are a really good side challenging for the top three in Spain this year. I think it's summed up best by the fact that over the two legs of 14 bookings. I mean, Getafe are really physical, really aggressive, almost a mini Atletico Madrid. And I thought that really showed the the lack of fluency in, in Ajax's passing from deep positions. And Another just, thing that summed, him up, summed this one up was uh, the ball was in play for only 42 minutes and 36 seconds uh, in one of those games. <laughs> the, the second shortest amount of time in a Europa League game since 2009. So, I mean, that, that gives those who haven't seen Hitafe an idea of how they try to squash a game uh, and uh, once they've gone ahead. Yeah, I was unaware of that statistic, but it, yeah, that very much I sums it up. I think that sums it up, yeah. 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 So a, a tricky European campaign for, for Ajax this season, following on from last season's sensational run to the semi-finals of the Champions League. What about in the Eredivisie Prier? What's happening there? I, I saw that... Ajax started very well, unbeaten for 15, but then lost five of their next 10 games. So then they're not cruising to a title by any means. No, no, definitely not. And so I think it's been coming for the last few months because um, they've just been conceding an increasing number of chances. Again, we've talked about the sort of lack of just a starting, established sort of starting 11. Um, and... It, they they have been lucky not to concede in a lot of games, um, and essentially just you know got by because they could score more goals. Um, but recently, of course, we've talked about the injuries and the fact that both Promes and Ziyech have been missing, um, and it's just starting to catch up with them. And 
it's it's that sort of effect that we're kind of seeing with Man City this season where some teams have just, you know, played against them enough to figure out a way to um, get the better of them. Um, and RZ did that really well. Um, Utrecht actually did that really well as well. Um, and because as, as Michael described, they try and overload the um, opposition's centre. So what teams have just resorted to doing is playing a sort of flat 4-4-2 um, with both wingers dropping back if needed as well. So it can become like a 6-3-1. Um, and then what happens is that Ajax tend to just lose the ball, gets booted up and they're left with a uh, lack of numbers at the back and with the sort of centre-back problems we've described as well. It's It's that sort of goals that they tend to concede and it's just making it harder for them to score as well because teams just know that if you defect, defend really compactly and you um, cut down the spaces for them to go into it's going to affect the way Ajax play and you're going to just force more errors out of them. It's an interesting situation for a manager that isn't it? We've seen plenty of managers build good or great sides with a specific system or systems and generally the the biggest test comes from normally around a year in where opposition teams have more of an idea of how to counteract it how to make it harder for them and and you've kind of described there that the Eredivisie has caught up with what Ten Hag's Ajax are trying to do and and now it's on Ten Hag I suppose and his group of players to find a, a different way how is Ten Hag considered as a manager in in Dutch football it is a nation that has had some pretty incredible managers in its time. And, and after his achievements last season, I can imagine he, he got a lot of credit for that. Where do people generally stand, do you think, at the moment on Ten Hag as a, a manager in the world game? Because his, well, his career so far has been kind of interesting. Go-ahead Eagles were the first club he managed. Then the Bayern Munich second team, of course, when Guardiola was the manager there, uh, before moving to Utrecht before he came to Ajax. So where do we stand on Ten Hag at the moment? So he was actually considered quite highly uh, when he was at Utrecht. Um, he played. He used to play a very sort of typical 4-2-4 uh, diamond in midfield. And it was it was very kind of unique in, in a league that, you know, just sticks with 4-3-3, bread and butter. Um, I think obviously rightfully so, he got a lot of credit for last season because um, I think he dealt well with the balance between defence and um, attack. And he's almost sort of sacrificed some of the conventional Ajax principles um, in order for a more uh, modern game. Um, and I think the, mo the most important thing he achieved last season was that he got rid of a very kind of, um, a very, let's say, non-threatening style of play that Dutch football has been uh, taken over by the last couple of seasons, which is just passing it from one side of defence to the other with no sort of vertical uh, passing. This season, obviously, he's had his challenges and I think there's still chance for him to salvage it. I think some of his moves have been interesting just in terms of just constantly tweaking with uh, who to play at 
defend in defensive midfield and I don't think he's quite found that yet but he's gotten a lot of credit for using a lot of the youth as as you will do if if you're um, an Ajax manager I don't think he should be considered as one of the best managers in the world just yet I can see him staying at Ajax for at least another couple of seasons um, but um, I think this this season and next season will be the real challenge for him because he did so well in that season uh, with the Champions League and the the domestic double it'll be interesting to see how he copes with the loss of Ziyech because over the last four years um, no one has been as integral to Ajax's success as Ziyech has and it's no coincidence that they've done so well in Europe and domestically uh, when he's been at the club but it will be interesting to see where he goes and how he progresses because I think people have held him in high regard in the Netherlands but he's obviously been faced with more challenges and I don't think the word the, the verdict is quite out yet and in the meantime of course uh, a very interesting title race with RZ as you mentioned who have beaten Ajax home and away and I think that sums it all up very well for us thank you so much Priya for giving us amazing amounts of insight and your expertise into Ajax how they've coped with losing De Jong and De Ligt, how Ten Hag's team set up and how they might cope with the departure of Hakim Ziyech to the Premier League this summer. Michael, thank you for providing the, the foil, the Quincy promise, perhaps, to, to Priya's <laughs> uh, uh, Dusan Tadic. Thank you. And Priya, thank you so much for giving us your time and expertise on this week's Zonal Marking podcast. Consider myself a bit more of a Hakim Ziyech, but no, thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> I was saving that for me, <laughs> taking a lot of shots from bad locations and occasionally finding the top corner. No, I'm doing him a disservice. Thank you guys for listening to this week's Zonal Marking podcast. We are one of many podcasts produced by The Athletic, all of them free on all podcast platforms and ad-free on the athletic site and of course on the site on the app as well it's not just about audio content but written content too from michael and from a whole host of other football writers and sports writers from across american sports as well if you haven't signed up to the athletic and you'd like to give it a go head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal and you'll get 40% off your annual subscription. So do give The Athletic a go today. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast, the Zonal Marking Podcast, as well as all of the other Athletic pods. And we'll be back again next week with a new topic on the Zonal Marking Podcast.